I think one of the more brilliant inventions of the past couple of decades is the fast-forward button on a TV remote. It allows me to skip those gory scenes and movies, but even more importantly, when combined with a DVR, a video recorder, it means you pretty much never have to watch a commercial again. I've gotten out of the habit of watching live TV. If I watch TV, it's mostly movies that I record so that I can watch them when I have the time, plus it means I don't have to watch any commercials. I'm so spoiled that when I do watch unrecorded TV, a live sporting event, for example, I feel really put upon that I can't fast forward through those commercials. Now, this morning's scripture passage in Luke feels as though we've all taken advantage of the fast-forward button. The past few weeks, we read about Jesus as an infant and child, and then suddenly, today, Jesus is all grown up. In first-century Palestine, a 30-year-old isn't even a young man. A fully-grown, middle-aged Jesus comes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptizer. In the verses preceding today's passage, Luke describes John and his ministry. Luke doesn't mention the camel hair shirt or the diet of locusts and honey, but you might be pleased that we fast-forwarded through what Luke tells us that John says. John calls the crowd a brood of vipers and warns that even now the axe is ready. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's what some people call a turn-or-burn sermon. But fast forward once again. Before Jesus even gets to the riverbank, Luke describes how John was arrested and thrown into prison because he infuriated King Herod. That's in the verses that we skipped this morning, verses 19 and 20. These verses don't mean that we're supposed to be wondering, well, then, who baptized Jesus? Luke tells the story out of order, so that when Jesus finally appears at verse 21, the camera stays focused on him. It will not swing back to look at John the baptizer ever again, because after all, John has already affirmed that he is not the Messiah. So with the camera off John, we get a very short description of Jesus' baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, that's it. Jesus went to the Jordan to be baptized with the crowd. People have long argued about why Jesus needed to be baptized. Why was Jesus the Messiah baptized by John, not the Messiah? Did Jesus need to repent of his own sins? Even the early church must have asked this question because in Matthew's gospel, John the baptizer tries to deter Jesus. Why do you come to me, he says. I need to be baptized by you. And then a hundred years later, Jesus' baptism by John still made some Christians uneasy, as evidenced by another book that didn't make it into the canon, not that wasn't included in our official Bible, a book called The Gospel of the Hebrews. In this book, Jesus denies any need to repent, and he gets baptized to make his mother happy. (laughs) Can't you just picture that? Mary wagging her finger at the adult Jesus, saying, now, Jesus, you're supposed to be a good role model here. 
What could it hurt? Go on, get baptized. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is clearly the Son of God even before he's born. So he doesn't need the baptism to tell him that, and neither do we. So I think it tells us something else. That phrase, now, when all the people were baptized, gives us our first clue. Robert Coles tells a story about the first time he met Dorothy Day, the famous Catholic social worker. When Coles was a medical student at Harvard, he volunteered to work at the Catholic Worker. That's a movement grounded in a firm belief in the God-given dignity of every person. Coles was a Harvard graduate. He was in medical school, studying to be a psychiatrist. In our society, that's about as high status as you can get. He knew that, and he was proud of it. He was also proud that with all these credentials, he was volunteering to help the poor. When Coles arrived at the premises of the Catholic worker, he asked to see Dorothy Day. I guess he figured he might as well go right to the top. He was told that she was in the kitchen. He went into the kitchen, and he saw her sitting at a table talking to someone. He'd had enough medical training at this point to recognize that the man with whom she was speaking was an addict. He was disheveled. He was obviously a homeless person. Dorothy Day was sitting with him, listening intently to what he had to say. She didn't notice Coles come into the room. Cole stood near the door and waited for her to finish. When she'd finished the conversation, she stood up, and that's when she noticed Cole's. She asked, do you want to speak with one of us? Now, Cole's was stunned. Dorothy Day was famous. This man with her was a nobody, even a derelict. Do you want to speak with one of us? Cole's had never seen anything like this. The day could so identify with another person so completely as to remove all distinctions between the two of them. It, it cut through all the ways we measure ourselves against each other, all the categories that society sets up to separate us from one another. There were just two people, a sister and a brother, the sister concerned about the brother. The encounter changed Cole's life. He said he learned more in that one moment than he did in four years at Harvard. Like Dorothy Day, Jesus was removing the distinctions between himself and all the people. All the people are getting baptized. And so Jesus is baptized as well. Of course, it wasn't literally all the people. You can bet King Herod wasn't out there waiting to be dunked. But all the people who are longing for the good news, that their present situation isn't the way life has to be, that God has something else, something better in mind, those are the people who come to be baptized. John the baptizer comes across as harsh, but if you listen closely, his turn or burn words are actually words of justice and hope and even comfort. In the earlier part of this chapter, chapter 3, the people ask John what they need to do in order to change their situation, and he replies, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, 
and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and he tells them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And what about us, asks the soldiers, and John answers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. John is preaching a common-sense justice and fairness that the people are not experiencing in their lives in the Roman Empire. He's preaching what we already know. Maybe you can't turn around an empire, but you can turn yourself around, which is what the word repent means. And eventually, if enough people turn around, that turns empire around. It is into these waters, the waters of the longing of all the downtrodden people, that Jesus steps to begin his ministry. Jesus' baptism announces that the Son of God identifies with all the people, all the people, whether or not they've shown up at the Jordan. It announces to us that he is not only among us, he is one of us. Max Lucado puts it this way, Jesus knows how you feel. You're under the gun at work, Jesus knows how you feel. You've got more to do than is humanly possible? So did he. People take more from you than they give? Jesus understands. Your teenagers won't listen? Your students won't try? Jesus knows how you feel. You are precious to him. When you struggle, he listens. When you question, he hears. He has been there. You are precious to him. Jesus' baptism also announces that he is rooted in God, that he is ritually and publicly re-rooted into participating with God in the ministry that John describes, bringing shalom to all of God's precious people. After his baptism, Jesus hears words from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Is God pleased because Jesus decided to be baptized or just pleased with him generally or both? We don't know. But we do know that these words are not unique to Jesus. They echo this morning's Isaiah passage. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, because you are precious in my sight, and honored, and I love you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So these words that Jesus hears from heaven don't set him apart. Like his wading into the Jordan in the first place, they lump him in with the rest of us. As the first letter of John tells us, God has loved us so much that we are called children of God, and we really are 
God's children. We are God's beloveds. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. We are precious to God. So precious that God became like us. So precious that, as Frederick Buechner puts it, now all ground is holy because God not only made it but walked on it, ate and slept and worked and died on it. If we are saved anywhere, we are saved here. And what is saved is not some diaphanous distillation of our bodies and our earth, but our bodies and our earth themselves. Jesus was baptized, and it made him part of the crowd, the crowd of broken and hurting people longing for wholeness, longing for life, this life, to be just and peaceful and safe. Jesus became part of our crowd. And fast forward, when we are baptized, and when we reaffirm baptism, as our new members will do this morning, we join his crowd, rooting our identities into his as God's beloveds, ready to turn around and roll up our sleeves to turn the world around. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.